You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. What is it like to be a patient with insomnia? To be told it's your fault? Just relax or take this med or that med. Our guest today weaves together her personal experience with insomnia and the latest sleep science. Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, And with me today is Dr. Gail Green. Dr. Green is a professor of literature and women's studies at Scripps College, Claremont, California. She is a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and is the patient representative and board member of the American Insomnia Association. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Green. Thank you very much. Dr. Green, let me begin by asking why a literature professor wrote a book on insomnia. Yeah, well, sleep has always been the major, most serious problem in my life, you know, getting enough of it so I could do whatever I needed to do the next day, teach the class, write the book. I mean, when you have this problem, it's just so central. You're always dealing with it. There's never a time you're not dealing with it. It doesn't go away. It affects your projects, your plans, your travel, your work, you know, what you hope for for the future. So I felt like I'd suffered silently for too long. And I was also hearing the same old, same old advice over and over, get up earlier, avoid caffeine and alcohol, don't worry so much. And I was reading this advice. I mean, every book I read seemed to say the same thing. It was like I was reading the same book. And I've been hearing this advice for a really long time because my father was a doctor and he would tell me, exactly what I've just said, and kind of pass the buck to me, like it's something you're doing wrong, um, if you'd only, you know, go to bed earlier, if you only wouldn't get so wound up. And so I finally, I just asked, like, what is going on that I'm hearing the same thing 50 years later? That was I was 13 when I was getting that kind of advice, and I'm, you know, <laughs> it was 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago. Where is the research? Why has the tune not changed in 50 years? Well, now's your chance. So talk to our physician listeners about what it's really like to have insomnia. Oh, it's completely miserable. I think people who take sleep for, I know that people who take sleep for granted don't get it. They just don't. I mean, you know, people are accustomed to having like maybe, you know, a bad night now and then, and it's usually caused because there's something on their mind or something like that. So they assume that's the case for everyone. There must be something on you. You must be worried. You must have a guilty conscience. And, you know, often I, I can have insomnia. There will be not a thing on my mind. I will go to sleep. I'll be relaxed. I'll be, you know, I've had a good day and nothing urgent the next day. And I'll lie there. You know, it's just nothing. And it's not even a racing mind. But it just, you can't function when you have two or three or four. I can't anyway. Some people can. There's a difference between a short sleeper and an insomniac. Some people do not need more than three or four hours. I know quite a few of these people. They're very, very lucky. And often doctors assume, oh, well, you know, if that's what your body wants to give you, then that's maybe that's all the sleep you need. That's something I've heard a lot from doctors. And my response to that is, you know, I really know how much sleep I need, and I need more than that. I'm not functional, and I'm certainly not happy on that little sleep. Some people are. I'm not. This is not a one-size-fits-all kind of situation. I've lived around it. I've, you know, it's determined like what I plan the next day. My, Can I go on that trip? No, I can't go on that trip. I would not sleep the whole time. You know, I've said no to trips to China, trips to India. That's just not, <laughs> not in the cards for me. And I've been very, very lucky, I should say. I'm an academic. I'm able to structure my own hours. 
people who are caught in a nine-to-five world get very badly mangled by this because they don't have the, the latitude, the freedom to schedule their own time. So that's, I think, one of the reasons I went into academia, the one nine-to-five job I ever had I got fired from. So tell us what a day is like following a reasonable night's sleep for you versus the ordinary awful sleep that you get. Oh, God. Well, I don't get very many six- to seven-hour nights without some chemical help, <laughs> I should say that. The Maybe four or five or six times a year that I get a night like that, I feel like I could take on the world. I mean, I have this kind of energy and intelligence and optimism that I think this is the way some people live all the time. They just take this for granted, like it's the way life, the way life feels. And my life doesn't usually feel that way. I mean, on two or three or four hours, I feel like I can't take on anything. <laughs> it's the difference between being at the bottom of an avalanche and being at the top of a ski slope. Sleep is so interesting to me. I mean, the more I got into this book, the more fascinated I became by it, how they understand so little about it. And yet, it's the fuel of life. I mean, sleep is your better self. It's your consciousness. It's your creativity. You try living without it, and all of those things, they go. Your sense of humor goes. Your relationships with people, you know, fall off. You just don't have the energy. Marriages break up over this, over insomnia. I mean, I've never seen a study done, but boy, anecdotally, I encountered so many people who's, you know, who just said, my husband left me, you know, he couldn't stand sleeping with me and he wouldn't sleep without me. And, blah, blah, blah. you know, this, this kind of story occurs over and over again. So the difference between having sleep and not having sleep is the difference between having fuel, you know, having a full tank for your life or or being on empty all the time. And we do get cranky and irritable, and then we get a bad reputation. Oh, well, naturally they're insomniacs. They're, look at what an unpleasant, you know, cranky person this is. Well, it's the cause and effect is mixed up there. I mean, you actually become that way because you have the sleep problem, not the other way around. Now, you interviewed countless experts to write the book Insomniac. What was the most surprising thing you discovered during your research? Well, I... The most surprising thing was really how few researchers are on it, um, <laughs> are actually on it in the way that I think will make the difference, will make the breakthrough that will help us to understand it so that we can get treatments that more specifically target it. I expected there to be a whole world of insomnia researchers. There are actually a fairly limited number, at least the ones that came to these meetings, were sort of the same faces over and over again. And then and they tended mostly to do behavioral modification, which is sort of a version of putting it back on the patient. And in some cases, behavioral modification is really important and valuable and will transform a person's life. These sleep hygiene tips and not using the bed for, for anything but sleep and sex and all those things that we hear all the time, it's very limited, that kind of help. And it's dominated the discourse. It's dominated the field, I think, in a very kind of destructive way. It's kind of strangled it. And I looked for, you know, the neurobiological research on insomnia. I couldn't find it. I mean, it's just by my reckoning, looking at the NIH figures and names of the research grants given and the funding for them, I counted up about $4 million that, were, that was spent on neurobiological research into insomnia for the year 2005, there were 20 million in all on insomnia, which is hardly anything, but most of it went to treatments and therapies and kind of studies of behavioral modification. I mean, very little of it went to a search for the cause. So that was astounding to me. But of course, it explained a lot. It explained why 
we're still hearing the same old tune that we heard 50 years ago on, on this. Nobody is really looking. You don't look, you're not going to find. And I have to say there have been really exciting breakthroughs in other areas in sleep. Narcolepsy has had a major breakthrough where researchers have discovered the deficiency. What neurotransmitter is deficient in uh, narcoleptic brains? Oh, it's a wake-up transmitter, and it accounts for the fact that they're always falling asleep. Restless leg syndrome has had a similar breakthrough. That's what's needed in insomnia, but insomnia has had no such breakthrough. I mean, there just hasn't been any kind of, aha, you know, there's less of this, there's less of that. This mechanism operates in a different way than it does in normal people because people just aren't doing the necessary research. They're working on apnea much more than on insomnia because it's much easier to work on. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Gail Green. We are discussing her new book, Insomniac. Yeah, Gail, you know, one of the things that always amazed me was here sleep, at least theoretically, we should be spending a third of our life doing it. And in medical education, we learn very little about it. You know, when I went to med school, we had a one, one hour lecture on sleep, and that was it. So no surprise, I guess. And it wouldn't be much different today. I mean, they're, they're finding that it's the same problem. Doctors just get very little in the, in the curriculum. The textbooks don't give a lot to sleep. It's like the, in, the great invisible. My theory is that these the books are written by people who sleep well. You know, the curricular are designed by people who sleep well. So what's to talk about? Turn out the lights, you go to sleep. Any tips for physicians on how best to help their patients that do have insomnia, especially those good sleeper physicians? Well, don't trivialize this. This is a really serious disorder, and, and, and the doctor probably sees quite a few insomniacs each day, or the, although many don't talk about it, so maybe, I don't, I don't know how many insomniacs doctors actually do see, but it's a serious disorder. I had a doctor say to me, well, nothing wrong with you except you can't sleep. <laughs> you know, I didn't even know where to start with that one. And don't send us down the hall to the shrink. You know, don't kind of pass the buck to psychiatry. I mean, they don't know how to deal with it either, unless we need, unless you really think there's a psychological disorder there. But insomnia is not necessarily a psychological disorder. It is likely to be in the body. It is likely to be in hormones. I mean, find out about a woman's hormones and listen to us when we say, I think it's hormones, because a lot of women have a sense that it's hormonally determined. I certainly was for me. I mean, I had I was just a victim, the brunt end of my hormones all my, all my life. And listen to us, because we're not one size fits all. We need individual treatment. And don't kind of stereotype, oh, this is a neurotic, depressed, middle-aged woman. Let's give her an antidepressant. Listen to what we say about where we think it may have come from. Our ramblings may give a clue to what's gone wrong and how it can best be treated. And troubleshoot the condition with us. I mean, really help us kind of think it through Work with us on finding the right drug. If we decide to go, don't just slap on whatever drug is readiest to hand or that you have samples of or something. I mean, there is, of course, real trial and error in drugs. The patient has to find out which drug works. I mean, hugely various responses to these drugs. And so we may not find the drug that works for us the first time. So don't think we're a junkie if we come back and say, you know, I want to try something else. I mean, there's this horrible thing that whenever you ask for a sleep med, the eyebrows go up and you think, oh, you know, what kind of a junkie is this? Well, I'm not. I'm just trying to get some sleep. (laughs) That's the way 
most insomniacs are. And just also the web. The web has been very helpful to insomniacs, and if we bring in information, try to sort of deal with that. I know the web is also full of nonsense, and doctors are sometimes impatient with that, but it can be very helpful as well. You spent a lot of time writing this book. I'm curious, are you more or less hopeful about your own insomnia since writing Insomnia? Well, my insomnia is a constant. You know, it's pretty much the same no matter what I do, although it might have improved a little bit while I was writing the book because I was living like a (laughs) shut-in. I mean, I was saying no to so many external, you know, appointments, and people understood that I was really intensely involved in this project. So, I don't know, maybe that helped. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us today. Welcome. It's a pleasure. We've been talking with Dr. Gail Green, the author of Insomniac. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.